hey, there's people up at Mayapple that are listening this morning. (laughs) Uh, All right, let's uh, open up in in a word of prayer here this morning, and we'll get things started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. Uh, thank you so much for the rain. Uh, we desperately needed it, and and it's just been. Uh, even though we love the sunshine and we love to be out, uh, it's been great to have this rain, and so we're just thankful for that. And Lord, uh, this morning as we come in here to to this place and we join together to worship you and to learn from your word, we just pray for your guidance. We pray that the Holy Spirit would just control everything that we do. In this class, as we look into these uh, kind of complicated, uh, often uh, unspoken about things, we just pray that you would uh, give us wisdom and help us to uh, to see the things that you want us to learn. And we just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. Like I said, it's great to have a little liquid sunshine, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, this morning, uh, let me begin with a question. Uh, have you ever noticed how many holy mountains the Bible talks about? Has that ever caught your attention? You know, that, that the Bible speaks so often of, of, of holy mountains, of God's holy mountain. Um, you know, what do they mean? What, what's, what's going on there? Like, what exactly is this all talking about? Uh, also, gardens. Gardens pop up. Now, obviously, we know the Garden of Eden, but it's not the only time that, that kind of gardens are referred to, and in particular, um, a stress on places that are well-watered, uh, have like, a, like rivers flowing th- to them, and how that's often kind of seen as, a, as a, a symbol of blessing in the Bible, in both Old and New Testament. We talked about some of this stuff in the, in the Revelation class over the last couple of years, that some of these kind of like metaphors popped up, uh, and we saw how the Bible used many of these things as kind of a, a way of showing, uh, you know, showing certain things, showing blessing, uh, showing the place that God dwelt, things like that. So that's what I want to start by talking about today. Now let me start by giving you some examples. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 48. I want to look at verses 1 and 2. And first we're going to look at some examples of God referring to holy mountains um, or, or the, the, the heights, uh, sometimes the language is. Uh, we're, we're going to see a couple of those. We'll look at like three of those, and then we're going to look at a few examples of gardens. It says, How great is the Lord, how deserving of praise in the city of our God, which sits on his holy mountain. It is high and magnificent. The whole earth rejoices to see it. Mount Zion, the holy mountain, is the city of the great king. Um, and, and some of you might have, uh, uh, or Mount, Mount Zion in the far north. Some of you may have that in, in your Bibles, okay? Uh, those are, are both yeah, basically the same translation. The holy mountain or the far north are, the, are kind of the same thing. It's that idea of the far north or, or the, the, the heights, uh, kind of speaking of, of, of the heights of mountains. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 14. In verse 13 in particular, and we will probably come back to uh, Isaiah uh, 
14 at a little later date. Isaiah 14 and verse 13. Now, this is in a, a passage that, that many believe is speaking about Satan, or at least part of this passage is speaking about Satan. Uh, there is some disagreement among scholars about that, but, but you know, that is what many, many believe. Um, but for our interest today, we're not going to talk about that today. Today, I want us to notice you know, what it says here in verse 13. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. And, and again, there is, there's that phrase, uh, the actual literal Hebrew phrase is on the, the heights of Zaphon. And Zaphon, just, that's the Hebrew word for north. Okay, so that, that's, that's why in most places it's just translated the north. Um, one more. Let's, let's turn back to Exodus chapter 24. And again, this is just an example. There are actually many, many cases where this is referred to. And, and, you know, and it tends to be one of those things we just kind of like move right on by without really thinking much about it, why the Bible speaks so much about about mountains. Um, look at verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah chapter 24. Uh, excuse me, not Isaiah, uh, Exodus chapter 24. My head was still back in Isaiah. Exodus 24 verses 9 and 10. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, uh, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. Now, you know, this is, again, it's a, it's a part of the story of the Exodus that we don't often read. Uh, you know, we kind of pick it up oftentimes after this, uh, you know, but we don't often kind of remember this part where the elders of Israel uh, and, and, and these guys, uh, you know, went along with Moses up the mountain uh, and, and they saw this, this kind of vision of God. Uh, but it's fascinating, you know, you see God on the, on the mountain uh, and they see this, uh, you know, under his feet, this kind of brilliant surface of lapis lazuli. And that, lapis lazuli, you know, we don't talk much about that today, but it's, it, blue is, is the color. Lapis lazuli is blue. It's like a, a, a bright blue. It's, it's a, like a gemstone or, or uh, like a mineral that's like a bright blue. And it was, it was much more known in the ancient world than what, what we think of today. Now, you can still find it. Um, gardens. Now, obviously, the Garden of Eden. Let's uh, go back to Genesis chapter 2. Verses 8 through 15, and then we're also going to look at uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he made the man he had made. There he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. 
The first branch called Pishon flowed around the entire land of Havilah where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The second branch called Gihon flowed through the entire land of Cush. The third branch called the Tigris flowed east of the land of Ashur. And the fourth branch is called the Euphrates. God placed, uh, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. And if you look over at verse 8 of chapter 3, we have this interesting thing that, that of God being in the garden. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. All right. And that, of course, is after the fall. They, they hid because they were ashamed. Uh, so uh, again, here we see the, the you know, gardens in the Bible and the stress of gardens being well-watered places. Uh, the, the, you know, this place having essentially one water source that turns into four rivers. Uh, and these four rivers go all around the land and water the, the land. And we'll come back to that here in a second. Uh, let's look at Ezekiel chapter 28. Verses 13 and 14. I realize here at the beginning of the class today you're going to get your finger exercise. We're going to be in a lot of different, a lot of different places. Ezekiel 28, verses 13 and 14. And this is another passage that that many believe at least part of this passage is speaking to speaking about Lucifer or, or Satan. It says in verse 13, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, red carnelian. And by the way, you may have different stones here because the stones are uncertain. Like from the ancient translation, the word they used for the stones are not the same that we would use. And so people through the years have tried to translate what these stones actually are. So you may have different ones than what I read. That's not an issue. Uh, it's just the uncertainty of exactly what stones these are. Red cornelian, pale green peridot, white moonstone, blue-green barrel, onyx, green jasper, blue lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emerald, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold they were given to you on the day that you were created. I ordained and anointed you the mighty and angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. So there we see both the, 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 the garden imagery, Eden, and the mountain imagery together in one place. Okay? One last uh, passage. Let's look at, at Isaiah. And this is a passage that, that most scholars believe is dealing with the end times, but even in, in, in the future sense, uh, you know, God sees the place of mountains as, as kind of the place of God. Look at Isaiah 33, and we're going to start with verses 16 and 17, then we're going to jump up to verses 20 through 22. And this is, is uh, God has given this vision to, I, to Isaiah, and Isaiah is looking back at God's defeat of King Sennacherib uh, of, of Assyria, which happened back, you can read about that in, in, in the, the book of the Kings, 
uh, you know, the story of, of the defeat of Sennacherib. So Israel's kind of looking back at an ancient enemy and how basically God's saying one day, just like I defeated them there, one day I'm going to defeat them for good and you'll never have to worry about them again. That's kind of the whole, the whole point. But look at what, at, at what is said in, in uh, verses 16 and 17. These are the ones who will dwell on high. The rocks of the mountains will be their fortress. Food will be supplied to them, and they will have water in abundance. Your eyes will see the king in all his splendor, and you will see a land that stretches into the distance. So again, there you see that idea of, of food in abundance, water in abundance, on a mountain, and that's the place the king is. Okay, You guys starting to pick up on... This is what we're seeing in all these passages. If you jump down to verses 20 through 22, instead you will see Zion as a place of holy festivals. You will see Jerusalem, a city quiet and secure. It will be like a tent whose ropes are taut and whose stakes are firmly fixed. The Lord will be uh, our mighty one. He will be like a wide river of protection. And some of you will have, he will be like like many rivers. Okay? Uh, And that's probably it's just a passage people don't know exactly how to translate that's probably closest to it many rivers it will be a place of many of many rivers here the idea is rivers offer protection okay they offer you know god is protecting his people so the lord will be our mighty one he will be like a wide river of protection that no enemy can cross that no enemy ship can sail upon for the lord is our judge our lawgiver and our king he will care for us and save us. So again, we see this idea of holy mountains as being the place that God is, and they are also a place, they're described in garden ter- terminology also as a place where there's food, there's water, you know. So now what, what does all that mean? Why is that it's so often in the Bible? Well, it's really a simple answer. Think of where people in the ancient Near East and the na- ancient Middle East lived. They lived in the desert. They, they lived in desert territory. It was dry. It was arid. It was very hard to survive in a lot of places. Why do you think almost all ancient civilizations, and this is not even just in, 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 in you know, the Near and Middle East, even in, in Europe, in, in Far Eastern Asia, Northern Asia, all these places, ancient civilizations grew up by water. Because if you don't have water, you can't survive. That, that's just reality. That's life. Having water and learning to kind of use water for your purposes is enormous for people and always has been. So in the ancient world, in the way that they thought, Places that were well-watered, gardens, and also mountains were the places that gods lived. That's the way all ancient people thought. Not just Jews, but all ancient people. Think back to the time when you were in school, and I know for some of us that's a little longer thought back than it is for some of you. You know, some of you are still in school. You know, remember when you you learned, uh, you know, like about the Greek and Roman, you know, mythology? Where did, where did their gods live? Mount Olympus. See, this is not unique. This is, this is something that's shared by almost all ancient peoples. 
the thought, the idea that the gods were on the mountains, the gods were in the gardens, okay? That's, that's just, a, it's an ancient idea. Let me read something to you from, a, a, he's, he's just recently passed away back in the spring here, but, but a very uh, renowned Old Testament scholar, uh, you know, about this topic. This is from uh, Michael S. Heiser, his book, The Unseen Realm, which we will use from time to time during this study. It, it, it's, it's a book I would recommend. It's a good, uh, it's, it's a challenging read, <laughs> but it's a good read. Um, he says here, ancient people thought of their gods living in luxuriant gardens or mountains for simple reasons. It made sense that the gods would have the best lifestyle because, well, they're gods. Cosmic celebrities can't possibly live like we do. The ancient Near East was primarily an agrarian culture where most people subsisted day to day, hand to mouth. The few who didn't live that way were kings or priests, and thinking as the ancients did, those few had been chosen for that elevated status by the gods. The environment was hot and arid. Life depended on finding water and harnessing its power. That's why the world's first civilizations were founded along rivers, examples, the Nile, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Surely the gods lived in a place where water was abundant, where life-sustaining vegetation and fruit grew everywhere, where an abundance of animals were nourished to fatness. The gods lived in places where there was no conceivable lack, paradise. Mountain peaks were the domains of gods because no humans lived there. Ancient times were not like modern times. People didn't recreationally climb mountains. They had no equipment with which to get very far if they tried. Mountains were remote and forbidding, the perfect place for gods to get away from pesky humans. Mountain peaks touched the heavens, which was obviously the domain of the gods. This sort of thinking, in part, explains why Egypt's temples are carved and painted with the imagery of luscious gardens and why pyramids and ziggurats were built. And that, I want to stress that, pay attention to that, because we're going to look at that in an example in the Bible here shortly, okay? That, that's, that's basically why they were built. They were built for worship, all right? Uh, they thought they were reaching to the gods. That's how the ancient people looked at it. These structures were mountains made by human hands, which served as gateways to the spiritual world, the realm of the gods. In life or in death, they were metaphors in stone. You know, it's something we don't think about often, but when we see that in the Bible, it's a a view that's commonly held by virtually everybody in the ancient world. Now, let me just address something right away. Sometimes it kind of freaks people out that the Bible has certain points of agreement with other, you know, other cultures around it. Well, one, it's not debatable. I mean, it, you know, every, most uh, regular Christian sitting in the pews might not know that, but every Old Testament scholar does, every single one. It, it, it's not a debatable thing. We, we can read things of other cultures and see the similarities between what the Bible says and what they say. Now, what that does not mean is, one, it does not mean that there's, you know, they believe the same things. Couldn't be any further from the truth. You know, there's an enormous difference between what the Bible says about God and about these things than than what the cultures around Israel said. Okay, huge difference. No, No comparison. Second thing, 
Skeptics may look at this and they might say, oh, well, that just means they, you know, one borrowed from the other and none of this is real. But that doesn't, you know, that, that thought doesn't come into the mind of, of Bible scholars. Bible scholars look at it and they say, well, this would be natural. If people lived as neighbors, they lived in close proximity to one another, they're going to share a lot of, of, of same ideas in common. But there's going to be huge differences too, you know, which is what we find. And also, if you think of it this way, if something is based on truth, if something really happened in the ancient world, and we have a common ancestry, which is what the Bible says, then you would expect to see similarities in the different cultures, wouldn't you? They would diverge at some place, but you would expect to see similar you know, descriptions in, in, you know, the, in ancient cultures, which again is exactly what Old Testament scholars find. So it doesn't, you know, it, it's not really anything that should bother us, it, but it does freak people out sometimes the first time that they realize there's some similarities. Let me read something to you about one, one such uh, similarity. This is a, a place called Ugarit. Um, and and it, it has been the findings at, at, at this ancient place, the ancient Ugarit, it, it really has um, helped Old Testament scholars enormously, Okay. I want you to notice some of the similarities that you see in this description. It says, for our purposes, though, it is, less, it is the less grandiose ancient civilization of Ugarit, a city-state in ancient Syria, just to the north of Israel, which is particularly relevant. The site of Ugarit was discovered in 1928 and excavated in the decades that followed. One of the major finds was a library containing thousands of clay tablets, roughly 1,400 of which were in an, alphabetic, in an alphabetic language, now called Ugaritic, that was closer to biblical Hebrew than any other ancient language. Okay, It's, it's extremely close to Hebrew. In fact, he goes on to say the vocabulary and grammar are in many instances virtually identical. There are some words that are almost completely shared between Hebrew and Ugaritic. Now again, this should not be a surprise to us. I want you to think about your own English language. You're at, what, may, what makes English so successful? English is so successful because it has is, is taken words into it from all sorts of cultures. We have a lot of French terms, we have a lot, of, French comes from a Latin base, we have a lot of Latin-based terms in English, we, you know, the same thing is true with Spanish, which is also Latin-based, we have a lot of Spanish words in English. English has been successful because English is like a, a linguistic black hole. If it likes it, it sucks it in and makes it a part of English. And so it's been the, the most successful language in human history. And the reason it is, it's not just because, well, it's what we Americans speak. That's kind of how we think it's successful. That's not really the case. It's been successful because it simply continues to adapt. That and the fact that it has things like, you know, pronouns and adjectives. And, you know, it, it has things other languages don't, so you don't have to fill in the blanks. English fills them in for you. Problem with, like, Hebrew is so difficult because you have to fill in a whole bunch in Hebrew. At one point, Hebrew didn't have vowels. Imagine how hard that would be. Let me let just wrap that your, your head around that sometime. So you had to fill in a lot of things in order to know how to, you know, how to read something. You know, English does all that for us. So, you know, it's not, it's not new that cultures share words. 
and, and share certain parts of, of even of grammar. He says, scholars have learned a lot from this library uh, about both Ugarit and the, the content of the Old Testament. The chief deity was El, one of the, of the names that appear in the Old Testament for the God of Israel. El had a divine council whose members were the sons of El and had a co-ruler, Baal. This is where Baal starts to show up in our story, okay? And you're starting to get the idea why, why Baal, fighting against Baal worship was so difficult for Israel, all right? He mentions that here. He said, since El's and Baal's duties sometimes uh, appeared to overlap, and since Ugarit was so geographically close to Israel, it was small wonder that Baal worship was such a problem in Israel. The discoveries at Ugarit put all of that Old Testament history in context. El and Baal were, to say the least, markedly different in behavior from Yahweh of Israel. No, you know, no comparison to what who they were and how they behaved and, you know, and things like that. But because it was so close and some of the same words were used, Israel had a really hard time with Baal worship, you know, and, we, and anybody that's read any of their Old Testament knows that, you know, it, it was, it was a, a serious problem uh, in Israel. Uh, let me... Um, continue to read just a little bit here. The Council of El, and, and here's where I want you to notice the, the similarity in the description between this and what we, what one of the passages I just read uh, with where Moses and, and the elders went up and, and saw God up on the mountain. The Council of El met on, on a mountain or lush garden. These were not different places. Rather, the same place was described in two ways. The abode of El had an abundant water supply as it, it was situated at the source of two rivers in the midst of the fountains of the double deep. The divine council met in a place called Se Sepanu, the, the remote heights of the north. Sepanu means north. As I mentioned, the Hebrew word for north is Zaphon. So you see the similarity between the two words, okay? It, it, very, very similar. Council meetings were held in the tents of El or El's tent shrine where divine decrees were issued. At times, uh, Baal's palace was in view well, with its paved bricks that gave his house the clearness of lapis lazuli. See the, the, all the different similarities? See, once we kind of start to understand some of these things, we see why the fight with Baal worship was so difficult for Israel. And it, by the way, it wasn't just the people directly to the north, which would have been Ugarit. It was also the Baal worshipers were on the coast of Israel. You guys remember the Philistines, okay? The Philistines are, show up in almost all the biblical stories from the time of David, let's say. You know, before and after, but let's just, in particularly David. David had an awful fight with the Philistines. Philistines were also Baal worshipers. You know, and, and in many ways, uh, even to the north of Israel, there was Baal worship. So, you know, Israel, at least on its north and, and on its western flank and on part of its, uh, of its northeastern flank, was surrounded by Baal worship. And it was a very difficult fight for Israel because it was very easy to confuse, you know, the worship of the two. Even though when you look at what you know, what, what the Hebrews believed about Yahweh and what was taught about Baal, you couldn't find any bigger differences. 
you know, enormous differences. But you get the idea why this, was, this could be a difficult battle and why the people, uh, the Hebrews, sometimes would drift into Baal worship, all right? So this is just, you know, this is kind of part of, part of what Hebrew scholars, you know, what ancient historians know about the ancient world that we don't always know or, or understand. Now, how does this affect us in the study of the Bible? Well, a couple ways that I want to focus on here today. First of all, let's look at Eden itself. Um, and and we, we, we kind of start learning a little bit more about what was going on at Eden. I've always said probably the, the least understood and the poorest read passages in Scripture are the first several chapters of, of Genesis. People are always like, you know, we read it, we gloss over it, we've heard it in Sunday school class ever since we, we were a kid, and we think we kind of know it intimately, and then you'll start reading through it like in a class, and people will, will always say, wait a minute, I never noticed that, I never heard that. We, you've read like the first three chapters like 300 times in your life and never noticed that those verses were there. They didn't just pop up, they've been there the whole time. We just don't read Genesis very well. And the reason we don't is because we don't read it from an ancient context. You know, we just don't, we don't read it with their eyes in mind, but that's really kind of how you have to do it because it was written to them. If we go back to Genesis chapter 2 and read those same verses again, I want, I want you to see something, and some of you are already kind of putting this together already. Starting in verse 8, then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, a river flowed through, and, and I, I've, I've read these, so I'm not going to read the, the, the rivers again, but the, you know, four rivers that flow through. You guys are already getting the, the idea. Gardens, rivers, places in the ancient world God was going to be, okay? We get to the end of that. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to, to tend it and watch over it. You jump over to verse three, uh, or chapter uh, 3, verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. If you're an ancient Israelite and, and you're hearing this story, Moses has been given the first five books of the Bible, you're coming out of Egypt and you hear this story for the first time, what becomes very obvious to you right off the bat? The Garden of Eden was not just the place God made for man. It was also the place God was going to be. It was the place God was going to meet man. In many ways, think back to the time of, of the ancient um, tabernacle, where God would tabernacle with Israel. The, the word tabernacle you know, kind of even means like the place that, that, that God will dwell with his people. Uh, that's the whole concept of tabernacle. God coming and meeting with his people and dwelling with his people and being with his people at a certain place. Before they ever were escaping Egypt, before God ever gave them instructions on how to build the, the tent of the tabernacle, before any of that took place, 
God dwelt with man in Eden. Now, it didn't mean, you know, yes, God's home is in the heavens. But where he met man was in Eden. You know, and, and we see it clearly in Scripture. God walking, in, in, it says, in the cool evening breezes in, in the garden. It was God's garden. God's the one that planted it. It belonged to him. He had every right to it. He placed man in the garden. The, the plan was always for God and man to, to have this relationship together, and this becomes enormously important as we start looking at what happens later at, at the fall and then God's plan to bring that relationship back into place. You know, it's very fundamental, but it's something we miss a lot in our faith that God always has planned for, for mankind to be his children and for him to, to be in a relationship with them and, and to dwell uh, you know, with man. You know, we see it's God's garden. We see his presence in the garden. Another thing that we see here is that Eden was not the whole world. See, we often get confused about that. We think that, that the whole world was Eden, but Eden was not the whole world. You know, it, it, that couldn't be any more clear because God gives, you know, you know geographical boundaries to where Eden was at. He, he built a garden in the east in Eden, he put these rivers around it, and they flowed around to these other places that was not Eden. So Eden is clearly not all the world was. Eden was a garden within the world. There's several other things that, that point that out. Um, one, look at, at, at verse, I want to look at, at verses uh, 26 through 28 of Genesis 1. Verses 26 and 27 tell us and we're going to come back to this in a minute, but this will kind of segue us to that. Why are we here? Why do we exist as human beings? You ever wondered that question? That's one of the great questions of life. Why am I here? Why do I exist? It's really not a complex question biblically. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Biblical theologians call the, this, you know, the, the, the kind of Edenic mandate. It, this is God's marching orders. He said to man, go out and fill the earth. Go out into like all the earth. Start, basically, start having kids. Go out and fill the earth and basically take God's rule over everything in the earth. Now, there's a couple issues. Adam didn't have a wife yet. So, in, 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 you know, we, we see in the verses following, God, that's when God creates Eve. Uh, we, we also see God creates other animals, brings them to Adam, says, here, name them. And, and my personal opinion is the reason God was doing that because he wanted to show Adam none of them were his mate. None of them were the right ones for him. And that's the exact reaction you see when Adam meets Eve for the first time. And Adam, after naming all these other animals, he goes, kind of like, finally, 
here's one that fits me. Here's one that, 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 that's, you know, my mate, okay? So that's kind of like, like what we see, see happening. Um, so he had, doesn't have a wife yet at this point, but God's about to give him one. So that's, you know, absolutely necessary if he's going to start having children and spread out and, you know, subdue the world. Second thing that we see is then in the chapter following, God takes him and places him in Eden and says, care for this place. So again, there's a clear distinction between Eden and everything else. Also, when we see the the descriptions that that take place, look at at Genesis 2, verses 4 through 8. This is the account of the creations of the heavens and the earth. Uh, When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor gardens were growing on the earth, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. So in the beginning, all of the earth didn't have like food to eat. It didn't have things like that. It was there, but it was not a garden. Instead, God planted a garden on the earth, put the man in it, and said, take care of this place. But he still has the same mandate. You know, once this starts, I want you to spread out over all this, and I want you essentially to make the rest of the earth like Eden. That was man's job, to spread God's reign over the rest of the earth. In, in many ways, this is, it's, it's pretty simple. The earth needed subduing. Now, that doesn't mean the earth wasn't habitable. It doesn't mean there was anything necessarily wrong with the rest of the earth. It just means the rest of the earth was not Eden. Eden was the better place, but God wanted to make all of it like Eden. That's kind of the point. Again, let me read a a paragraph about this. It says, lastly, Eden and the earth must be a distinct site. Uh, After the fall, Adam and Eve are expelled from it and have to live elsewhere. Do you ever think about that? Remember when they're kicked out of Eden? Well, when they're kicked out, they got to go somewhere else. So the earth in total cannot be Eden. Yeah, it's really simple. Uh, Heiser has a bit of 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 a sense of humor. He says, unless you believe that they were sent into outer space, you must acknowledge Eden and the earth are distinct. Have to be. You know, God didn't kick them up to the moon when they left Eden and they went out into the rest of the earth. So those are clearly two different places. Observing this distinction affects a range of biblical concepts and provides solutions to a few thorny theological problems, but I'm only concerned with one issue here. The distinction helps us to see that the original task of humanity was to make the entire earth like Eden. Adam and Eve lived in the garden. They cared for it, but the rest of the earth needed subduing. That's what they're told, subdue the rest of the earth. It wasn't awful. In fact, Genesis 1 tells us that it was habitable, but it wasn't quite what Eden was. The whole world needs to be like God's home. He could do the job himself, but he chose to create human imagers to do it for him. He issued the decree they were supposed to make it happen. 
They were to do that by multiplying and following God's direction. Eden is where the idea of the kingdom of God begins. So we all think that whole idea of the kingdom of God is, comes much, much later, but that's always been God's plan. Always been God's plan. To, to, to live and dwell and rule with his people. You know, it, it's always been his plan. And it's no coincidence, and you guys that were with me in Revelation, you'll recognize this, it's no coincidence the Bible ends with the vision of a new Edenic earth. See, since the fall, that's where God's heading. God didn't give up on this plan. God, you know, one, God always knew we would fall. That's the thing about being an omniscient God. Two, God didn't just give up on man. He didn't give up on his own plan for what he wanted to do with this earth and what he wanted to do with man. And one day, just read the last two chapters of Revelation and see the imagery, uh, streams and waters and trees planted and all these things. It's a new Eden. That's what God is in the process of, of, of doing. And that's what one day he will complete. That's always been his plan. So we have a little bit different view of Eden than what we may have understood. Now, the question of why are we here, as, as, as I've already been talking about uh, you know, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, kind of gives mankind uh, you know, the mandate. This is what God wants us to do. If you look over into Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. You know, Eden was kind of like, that was the place God was going to come and dwell with man, and then God's plan was to kind of use that as like a base camp. From here, we're going to jump out to the rest of the earth, and we're going to fill the earth, and we're going to subdue it, and we're going to make all the earth like Eden. It's all going to be, it was already God's, but God wanted it to be like him. He wanted it to be like he wanted. He wanted it to be the place, all the earth to be the place he dwelt with man. That's how God always planned it to be. However, we screwed it up. You know, the fall happened and it changed that, but it never changed God's plan. And it's important for us to understand that. You know, God didn't give up on his plan. God was not defeated. And God would also figure out a way to bring humans along with him and remake us. You know, that... that I want you guys to start understanding that, that God's, his, his work of salvation amongst us in many ways was a spiritual battle. He was fighting the forces of evil to bring us back into relationship with him. And we will see that in glowing terms when we get into the life of Jesus toward the end of this class. The Bible is a supernatural book, and the things that are happening here are supernatural things. Next week, over the next several weeks, we're going to see that there are other beings that God has created, spiritual beings, that were involved in this story, okay, that had an effect on man and drawing man away. We're going to see that there's more rebellions than just one. A lot of times we think of Eden as like this rebellion against God. But Genesis 6, right before the time of Noah, shows us a second great rebellion against God. The Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 
shows us yet another rebellion against God and an attempt by man and also by these other beings to, you know, subvert God's plan. But God is, is victorious and will not let his plan be subverted. It's going to take a detour, but he's going to get it right back to where he wants it to be. You know, and, and, and so man's job, you know, we were created in God's image. Now, I just want to talk about that for a couple minutes here. What's that mean? Well, most of the time when we, we think of the image of God, we think about attributes, that God has shared some of his attributes with us. We have a will. We have a free will. We, we have uh, ability to be self-aware. We have a conscience. You know, we, we talk about we have a soul or we have a spirit. Uh, you know, we have intellect. We, we have emotion. Those are the things we always talk about when we talk about what it means to be in the image of God. Now, those things are important, but they are not really what it means to be an, an imager of God. They are the abilities that help us to image God. What it really means to be an imager of God is essentially that is our calling. You know, that is what we were made to be. It's an avocation, if you will. It, it, you know, it, it, is, it is who we are. It's our identity. Again, let me read something that Dr. Heiser deals with this here. He says, uh, so how do we understand the divine image bearing in a way that does not stumble over these issues and yet aligns with the description of Genesis. One of the things he talks about, and he's very you know, pro-life, which we are also, but he talks about the problem sometimes evangelical Christians make because they start all their, their um, understanding of why we are in the image of God is all attributes. Well, the problem is babies, when they are, they are first conceived, don't have intellect yet. They can't use their conscience, they can't use their will. And so we get ourselves in trouble sometimes when we're kind of in a battle with, with you know, people who support abortion because they'll say, well, then that means they're not viable up until a certain point. You know, and then a lot of times Christians don't know what to say. Well, the problem is we're thinking of it the wrong way. That's not what it means to be in the image of God. You are in the image of God simply because you're human, and it doesn't matter if you, ha you know, are, are just conceived. It doesn't matter if you have a severe disability in some way. There's no excuse you know, for the taking of that life because you are in the image of God just because of who you are, because God made you in his image. He gave you that, essentially that job title. You know? let, let, let me go on to read here. He says, Hebrew grammar is the key. The turning point is the meaning of the proposition in with respect to the, the phrase in the image of God. In English, we use the proposition in to denote many different things. That is, in doesn't always mean the same thing when, you, when we use that word. For example, if I say put dishes in the sink, I am using the proposition to denote location. If I say I broke the mirror in pieces, I am using in to denote the result of some action. If I say I work in education, I am using the proposition to denote that I work as a, a teacher or principal or, or in some other educational capacity. This last example, in used as as or a way of identification, 
This last example directs us to what the Hebrew proposition translated in means in Genesis 1.26. Humankind was created as God's image. When we think in, we don't think as all the time, but that is, a, that is one of the ways we use it. But in Hebrew, that's what it means. We are created not just in God's image, we are created as God's image. If we think of imaging as a verb or function, this tra- that translation makes sense. We are created to image God, to be his imagers. It is what we are by definition. The image is not an ability we have, but a status. We are God's representatives on earth. To be human is to, to, to image God. Every human being images God. They may not be very good at it. But every human being is an imager of God. That is why we are pro-life. It is also, by the way, why we need to be careful about things even like the death penalty in war. Too often we're very flippant about this. Oh yeah, just kill them all. I can't tell you the amount of Christians I've heard say things like that. That is not a biblical idea. That is in violation of the fact that we are imagers of God. Now yes, God provides you know, there are you know, circumstances where war and the death penalty are correct, but it can't just be willy-nilly anytime we just feel like it, because if you do that, you are violating the image of God. Mankind is in the image of God because we are human. That's what we were created to be. That's, that, that is who we are. This is why Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is followed by what theologians call the dominion mandate in verse 28. The verse informs us that God intends to be, intends us to be him on this planet. We are his representatives. It's why the New Testament calls us ambassadors for Christ. You know what an ambassador does? He is the official representative of the United States in another country. Essentially, he is the U.S. in another country. The embassy is U.S. territory in another country. There's a reason God uses this imagery in both Old and New Testament. That is who we are. We are, we, we are to create more imagers, be fruitful and multiply, fill, in order to oversee the earth by storing its resources and harnessing them for the benefit of all human imagers, the ideas of subdue and rule over. That is what's going on in Eden. So often we miss that. That is who we are as mankind. You know, this is enormously important. We're, we're quickly running out of time. Um, let's real quickly turn to Genesis chapter 11. I want us to see a, a different, we had a little bit different view of Eden. Once we kind of understand an ancient biblical viewpoint, we kind of see a little bit different view of Eden. Now I want us to see a different view of Babel. (coughs) Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, notice where the direction they're going back to after the flood. They're heading back east. They want to go essentially back to Eden. Now, 
we don't have the time to read it today, but in, in chat, I want you to read on your own. Here's a homework assignment. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It's what happens directly after the flood is over, everything's dried off, God's restarting things with Noah and with his family. And God, I want you to notice how the language is almost exactly the same as the, the dominion mandate in verse 28 of Genesis 1. It's almost identical. God tells him the same thing. It shows God has not given up on his plan. He says, fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And by the way, he institutes the death penalty because I created man in my image, which remember in Hebrew means as my image. I created man as my image. If, if an animal kills a man, he should be killed. If a human takes a man, he should be killed. Now, the law of Moses later on, you know, talks about the, the, you know, the definitions of that. There are things like accidental death and manslaughter. God didn't mean for people to be killed for, for those things. But a willful taking of a human life, what we would call first-degree murder, that's where the death penalty is supposed to come in. You know, and God mandates that because we are created as the imagers of God. Then we jump up to chapter 11. So they spoke the same language, they're all heading east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia, or, or many of you will have the plain of Shinar, they are the same thing, and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used in, in, uh, instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build a great city for ourselves. You guys notice that? Part of the, remember what the mandate was, Spread out, fill the earth, subdue the earth, basically be God's imagers over all the earth. What do they want to do? Nope, let's go back to, to, to you know, the east where Eden was and let's basically rebuild in Eden and stay here in one spot and we'll all be happy together. That's their idea. It's a direct rebellion against God. Uh, let's build a, city, a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the earth. But that's what God wants, though, isn't it? God wants them scattered all over the earth. That's their mandate. That's their job. It's their function. So they're rebelling against God. But the Lord God came down to look at the city and the tower uh, the people were, were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing that they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to, to understand each other. And that way, the Lord God scattered them all over the, the world. God did for them what they were not willing to do themselves. God said, okay, you don't want to all go one place? You want to rebel against me? I'm going to give you different languages so you can't talk to one another and you're have to, going to have to go off on your own anyways. You know, it, it was a direct act of rebellion against God. That's what Babel was. So often, and, and I, hey, I was the same way for years. I, I puzzled over that passage. Like, well, man, you know, they seemed at peace and they seemed united. Isn't that what God wanted? But that's not God's ultimate goal. God's ultimate goal was, was for mankind to fill the earth and be his imagers over all of the earth. Not to create their own way to God. Not to create a God in their own image where, you know, which is what they, they want to do. 
He said that, it says that is why the city was called Babel. Babel, it, it sounds like, it, it, in, in phrasing, it sounds similar to a Hebrew word that means confusion. So that's where the word comes from. And by the way, Babel is where the word Babylonian comes from. I, I'll throw this out there as kind of like a, a, a little bit of bait to get your interest for another time. Um, isn't it interesting that, you remember where, where God took Abraham from when he wanted to create the Jewish people in order to bring about his plan of, of bringing mankind back to him from here? Ur of the Chaldeans was, was basically an ancient, you know, ancient Babylon. The same place people rebelled against him, God said, okay, I'm going to take a, a man out of there. And out of that man, I'm going to make the Jewish people. Isn't it interesting, the similarities, he told Adam what he wanted Adam to do, and then he had to create a wife for Adam. He took Abraham out of there, and Abraham couldn't have children. Abraham, and his, well, Abraham could, but his wife couldn't. So God had, again, perform a miracle in order to make them able to do his mandate. See the similarities in how God works? God, you know, I, I think the Bible's beautiful. It, it, you know, clicks together like pieces in a puzzle once you start to understand it. It's, it's, it's a, a, a cool thing. So God takes Abraham out of this place, Babel, said, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. And again, it's, it ends with that statement. This is how God got his, his, accomplished what he wanted to get accomplished. That's the whole purpose of Babel. But we read that, we don't even miss, we, we miss that last statement most of the time. But that's what God's doing here. Babel was a rebellion against God a massed, organized rebellion by essentially all of humanity. And God said, uh-uh, you're not gonna get away with that. This is what I want you to do. This is what I've told you I want you to do. I'm gonna make you do it. You know, and, and, and God splits them up and sends them to different places. Now, boy, it's, I, I wanna read something real quickly to you here. In Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 25. I knew this was an ambitious plan today, but hey, we're almost there. Romans 1, verses 18 through 25. This is, is God basically talking about his anger toward the sin of humankind. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God, has, God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God. But they wouldn't worship him as God or give him uh, thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, 
who is worthy of eternal praise, amen. Now, scholars disagree on exactly when this happened. Some look at Eden, some look at the time of Noah, others, most think this happened at Babel. That is what's being referred to here. Most, most, you know, Christian theologians believe this is referring to Babel. That this is how God saw Babel. This is what they were really trying to do. They were trying to create their own way to God. Think of the Tower of Babel. It's a man-made mountain. That's basically what it is. God was, you know, God, the God, they thought the gods dwelt on mountains. God has his holy mountain. But here the people were trying to build a mountain of their own to get to God, a God of their own imagining, a God of their own image. They, that's kind of when they began to, to worship all these other things. It was clearly a rebellion against God, and that's how God sees this rebellion. The good news is God's plan is not over. Real quickly, quickly, yeah, quickly, I want to read John 1, verses 12 through 13. This is part of how John begins his gospel, his, his story of what Jesus has done. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. You notice that rebuilding that family again? They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. See, God's not done. Yes, humankind, because of our sin, we, we brought separation between God and man. We, we put a rift in that family that God was building. God's plan to live with his people, essentially to be their father and for us to be his children. That's always been God's plan. But humankind and Satan and, you know, the other fallen spiritual beings who wanted to subvert this, who wanted this all for themselves, they brought about the fall of mankind, but they didn't defeat God's plan. And that's the reason Jesus came, and and John understands that. It's one of the first things John says, God has come to rebuild his family. God's come to make us his children. And if you believe in him, if you put your trust in him, if you accept him, as it says here, you will be a child of God. That's always been God's plan, and it's still God's plan. You can look at other, uh, 1 John 3, 1 through 2, or 1 and 2, I don't have time to Look that up today, but that's another passage where, again, John talks about that same thing. God making us, uh, you know, into his children. So, you know, I wanted you guys to see that this is a spiritual battle. What has happened to man and what, where man is heading and what God's plan is is a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. Like I said, when we get to the time of Christ, you're really going to see this. It's going to really... I think by the time we get there, it's going to pop off the pages to you. When you see Jesus on the Sea of Galilee and the storms blowing up, you're going to see a supernatural nature to that. You know, you see him in his temptation, and the Bible's very clear, Satan comes to him and tries to draw him away. Again, you see that spiritual battle. You see him at the base of Mount Hermon, a place where Baal worship was ancient and and 
was huge, and the, the, the Jewish people saw that as a horrid place. In fact, they saw it as the gates of hell. And Jesus goes to that place with his disciples, and he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, against my people, against my family. Gates of hell won't do it. God's fight is a supernatural fight for the souls of his people to rebuild his family. Jesus is a hero in the greatest heroic story that's ever been written, the story to reclaim man. All right? So this is the start of this story. It, it's going to be a quick one. We only have, we got nine weeks to do it, but I think at the end of this nine weeks, at least I hope, you will have a greater appreciation for your Savior and for just what is going on in the Bible. All right? Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, these deep truths that are in there. Uh, there's such a, such a thread of, of, of these things running through everything in your word. And, and we often don't understand that. We miss it because we don't really understand that ancient context. And Father, help us as we look at this class, as we study these things, help us to try to recapture that, that ancient worldview so that we can understand our Bibles better and mostly so we can appreciate what you've done, what your son Jesus Christ has done and, and how he is, is a hero in this great story. And, and we just ask that you would help us to love you and appreciate you more each and every day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.